This is a new Earning Their Stripes episode on the Fish Stripes podcast, our show dedicated entirely to Miami Marlins player development. Hosting with Ian Smith, I'm Eli Sussman. It's the MLB postseason, one of the best stretches on the baseball calendar. The only thing better, the MLB amateur draft, which is less than eight months away. (laughs) Now that the draft order is set and the Marlins major league players are sitting on their couches, let's go in-depth on the 2020 draft. And Baseball America national writer, Carlos Colazzo is going to help us do that. Carlos, uh, before we get into the meat of this conversation about the draft, prospects past and present, I'm curious what your postseason viewing experience is like. Uh, Do you have any rooting interests of the teams that are remaining, any particular players that you're a fan of in October? Yeah, uh, it's it's tough kind of being in my position. I definitely grew up a Braves fan just growing up in North Carolina and kind of watching the team on TBS all the time. But I think – kind of being in the industry for a while now, uh, those team allegiances die down a little bit and you begin to see yourself root more for for individual players who are just fun to watch uh, or maybe even uh, some different systems based on people that you, you know who work with these teams, whether that be scouts or just different people that you've interacted with. You just want to see the people that you know do well. Um, so I wouldn't say that I have any super strong allegiances at this point. I'm just looking forward to some close games and some fun October baseball. So far, uh, the Braves Cardinal series has done that one for us uh, pretty well to this point. It's a question I always want to get in because following the Marlins, it's always the same story every year for most of my <laughs> life and most of Ian's life. You know, we know the team's not going to be in it, so we always need mm-hmm. to find ulterior like storylines and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's the question I'm always curious about with, with people that don't face the same routine every year. It must be nice to have some variety in actually what the – teams is and your relationships with those teams so yeah yeah it must be nice no, definitely i mean it's impressive to be honest the the fans of the marlins people who have been fans of the organization for a long time you guys have to be up there uh in the best fans in the game because like you said it's been tough for you guys for a little like i can imagine it's been fairly depressing but hey the farm system is turning around so knock on some wood maybe it'll maybe it'll be better in a little bit exactly yeah, man. Well, that's what we want to hear. And having you on today is probably the be- probably the best uh, podcast I've hosted this year, man. I- I've fallen in love with the draft for the last few years, and to sit here and get to talk to you about that is pretty awesome for me, man. Yeah, glad and, you guys uh, are excited for it. Absolutely. Well, you've been covering the draft now for full time for the last two years, and your work's been inspiring. What do you think the most rewarding, stressful parts of covering high school and college talent are? Uh, the most rewarding part is definitely once once the draft is finished, once we go through day three, uh, and, and fortunately the past two years that I've kind of been leading the draft coverage here at Baseball America, we haven't missed anyone on day one, and that's always the goal, like the, the main goal, anyone who gets drafted on the nationally televised event on the first day, we want to make sure we have information and scattering reports on all those players we have we have done that in the two years that i've been here i think we we do it pretty much every year but just kind of continuing that because if we don't have someone that gets drafted on day one like we go 500 deep in our ba 500 and we have uh state reports uh, on players extended out after that so if we don't have someone that gets drafted in the first day that would feel pretty bad but just kind of looking back at the work that you've done basically the entire year leading up to the draft and knowing that like you've covered the draft well has been rewarding um for me these past two years it's definitely fun to go through the process i'd say the most stressful part is definitely the month leading up to the draft so the entirety of may uh is basically just me uh and the other people here at baseball america who are helping out with draft coverage bunkering down and talking with scouts 
uh, basically on the phone all day if we're not at a field, which in May, uh, going to the field actually dies down a little bit and it's more phone calls as much as possible and then uh, writing all the reports we can. So that's definitely the most stressful time of the year, but it, it's definitely worth it once we kind of get that finished product. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't imagine that time leading up to the draft. Like even your I mean, personal level life, like just trying to go on Twitter, I couldn't imagine posting anything and not hearing, well, well, who's going to take this? What, what round is this guy going to go? I mean, I couldn't imagine that's everything you're hearing for months on end. And I mean, that's, that's got to be a stressful part in its own right, you know, just knowing it's never going to stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is. But uh, at the same time, the fact that people are so interested in kind of finding out information about the draft and, and people are uh, are really excited about asking questions about it. I mean, the interest in the draft in general in the baseball world, um, having that kind of excitement from the readership and just the general baseball audience. Uh, is a huge plus. I mean, if people didn't care about it and weren't as passionate about it, it would definitely not be as fun to do. So you got to take the good with the bad there. Absolutely, man. And, I mean, it's in big part towards your coverage that as Marlins, like, coverage people were able to anticipate where they went in the 2019 drafts going with J.J. Bleday out of Vanderbilt mm-hmm. with the first pick. And that whole draft class overall, you know, as a big assist from coming off a terrible year for the Marlins. They had really premium draft position with three picks in the top 50. And then even mm-hmm. further down, they picked up some really interesting guys by going over slot. Uh, we wanted to just get some of your expanded thoughts on that 2019 draft class. We know that Blade to the Marlins was a connection that you guys linked very far in advance as the pick mm-hmm. that they were going to go with first overall. But even immediately behind him, there are some very high ceiling guys that have the potential to be just as impactful at the major league level. So just your general thoughts on what the Marlins did in the draft this past year and taking advantage of that position they were in. Yeah. Like you said, we had, we'd linked the Marlins to Bladé specifically pretty far out. I think, I mean, the, the Marlins Bladé connection was one of the outside of Bobby, Witt to the Royals was one of the most prevalent rumors we heard kind of uh, a few weeks out from the draft. I don't know how early we had it at this point. I'd have to go look back and see how early we had it, but this last year's draft, the top six players really, it, it almost was easier than the, the 2018 draft in figuring out how the kind of first six picks were going to go. Um, we were getting consistent reports from everyone we talked to that that's going to be the order. A couple of rumors kind of on draft day that I feel like was more smoke than anything. But yeah, I mean, we heard that the Marlins wanted to make a shift uh, in the organization. They'd previously gone for some really high upside high school players in previous drafts and Obviously, J.J. Bladé is not from that demographic. Uh, he's one of the best hitters in the class. He's a guy who'd shown his, his ability to hit the ball um, in the SEC for three years and then tapped into his plus raw power as a junior. Um, so I think that's a fantastic pick right there at number four. I think there were some teams who were, who were thinking about pulling the trigger on Bladé in front of the Marlins, but, but the fact that he got there and they were able to grab him, I think, is great for them. Uh, and, you, and you mentioned it, some high upside guys after that. Cameron Meisner... Uh, the Missouri outfielder. I mean, he was a guy who was getting some some top 10 love early on in the season. He's extremely toolsy, uh, probably the most toolsy college player in the class. I think maybe Greg Jones, the UNCW shortstop, maybe would have an argument there. But Cameron Meisner, if he hits, I mean, he has a chance to be just as good as, if not better than J.J. Blade. But that's the big question, obviously. You have a little bit more security in J.J. Blade's bat and what he's able to do offensively but if things come together for Meisner I mean watch out you have a really exciting prospect uh and then even going further than that Nassim Nunez he's 
maybe the exact opposite of these two big physical college hitters. He's an undersized high school shortstop with a flair for the defensive side of the game. Um, he's a plus or plus plus runner. Um, so they still tapped into that well of exciting high school uh, demographic, but maybe a little bit later than they had in previous years. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you said something about, some, some, something about Fitter. I mean, excuse me, Fitter, Cameron Meisner, because mm-hmm. the fact that if he would have hit his junior year, I think he probably would have went in the top 15 picks. I mean, mm-hmm. he was he was injured and had some downtime, and I think Miami got really lucky with signing him where, where they did, and seeing him mm-hmm. play this year was exciting. He's a, a monster-sized kid. I've never seen an outfielder move like he does with his size, but, I mean, a center yeah. fielder for that matter. He's a freak. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how big and how physical he is. But like you said, he, he runs well despite that size. Now, we heard some people who said he has a chance to stick in center field. If you look at the number of center fielders at the major league level at that size, it's it's very there's like a very small sample of players. So we would imagine he goes to the corner. But like the fact yeah. that he is that physical and even has a chance to play there is impressive. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go back a little bit off the draft here and talk about when mm-hmm. we covered the Padres back in 2016. Miami's mm-hmm. farm in 2018 looked similar to that year in San Diego, but a year later, both franchises stood with an elite farm system due to some trading and good drafts. Um, mm-hmm. Is the Marlins rebuild starting to show similarities to what San Diego has been doing for the last three seasons? Yeah, I think so. Again, I'd have to I'd have to see where exactly they were. Actually, I can actually pull it up now and, and see just how much they've improved. And I think 2016. The Padres ranked as 25th in baseball, like you said. That was back when I was covering the team. And then uh, the very next year, they were top 10. And then if you look at how we've had the Marlins system ranked, uh, in 2018, we had them 24th overall. Um, That's our preseason organization ranking, I believe. Uh, And now they're sitting at number eight two years later. So they have definitely done a lot to improve this system. They've traded off a lot of really impressive players at the major league level. And they've kind of, I mean, this system three or four years ago is one of the worst in the league. uh, And to have a top 10 system, and it's only going to get better when you've got a number three pick in next year's class, which looks like a very deep draft class. Um, Yeah, I think they've done a phenomenal job. Now it's just about developing those guys they have in the system and turning them into productive major league players, which uh, the Padres are kind of on the cusp of that. We'll see what happens with, with these guys in the upper levels of the minors. Um, and maybe in a few years we'll see what the Marlins are able to do. But they've definitely done a phenomenal job uh, kind of revitalizing their their farm system. Absolutely. And just a little follow-up on the Padres-Marlins connection there. Uh, I want to know your immediate reaction to the Fernando Rodney-Chris Paddock trade at the time, knowing now what we know of what Chris Paddock can be. Yeah, honestly, I don't I don't really remember what my thoughts were at the time. This was before I was be- with BA, so I probably didn't know much about or as much about the prospect side of things. That's fair. Um, obviously, looking at it now in hindsight, I mean, Paddock is a, is a phenomenal pitcher and had a great year. Um, but I, I honestly would be uh, disingenuous to tell you that I remembered what I thought of it at the time. I'm curious what you guys thought, though, and what you think now. Yeah, I mean, thinking then, but... Um... At the time, A.J. Ramos was leading the NL in saves. Um, mm-hmm. The team was looking on the cusp of having a, a quality, maybe playoff-like run, so they made the trade for Rodney. In my eyes, it wasn't the greatest deal of all time, but we saw yeah. what happened with it, and it led to a rough end of the season. But it was a trade they made, tried to make as a, as a Loria special, as I like to call it, and wanted to make that mm-hmm. defense away run for the playoffs, and it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in general, I think I'm a little bit skeptical of trading for kind of those high-end relievers, uh, the top-of-the-line relievers, just because they're so volatile. Obviously, we've seen some teams, I mean, the Braves are playing right now, and they, they made some trades for some uh, really important relievers that are helping them at the moment. But it's tough when you've got a, a position group that's as volatile as relievers are. So, And with Fernando Rodney in particular, it's amazing that every year two teams fall for the same tricks again. He always pitches for <laughs> one team really well, and he always pitches for yeah. one team really poorly, and you don't know exactly – um, whether that slump's going to come in the first half or the second half. Uh, but that's seems to start, you know, with that trade three years ago. Ever since then, it's been each year is a carbon copy of itself. And, I mean, <laughs> I mean, props to him. He's now, I believe, the oldest active player in the league. And for the moment, he's actually pitching in the postseason with the Nationals. So he's the big winner of that trade, probably. <laughs> <laughs> the fact yeah, that- no, he's 42 years old and has been – Pitching for 17 years, that's definitely a, an impressive career. But <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. Well, to get away from that, we'll get back to the draft a little bit. Like you were saying, this 2020 draft looks to be loaded at the top. There's top-tier mm-hmm. college arms and bats with some high-ceiling players at the prep level. What do you think is the strongest position in the draft? And I'd love to know some of your favorite players early, this early in the season. Yeah, so uh, like you said, I think you mentioned the college pitching. I think that's going to be the story for the 2020 draft. I mean, especially kind of coming right off the back of the 2019 draft where we saw maybe the thinnest pitching group, college and high school, that we've ever seen in the draft era. I mean, the first pitcher didn't come off the board until number seven. That's the longest it's ever taken for the first pitcher to come off the board. That will not be the case in 2020. The college class is extremely deep. That's partially because – uh, the college arms have done really well, and also there are a number of 2018 members of that 2018 high school pitching class that was super deep. A lot yeah. of those kids were draft eligible sophomores. So you've got guys like Cole Wilcox, guys like JT Ginn, who are first round talents coming out of high school as pitchers, uh, and now they've succeeded at the college level. Ginn more so than Wilcox at this point, uh, but they both have first round stuff. Uh, in addition to guys like Emerson Hancock, who is definitely highly regarded out of high school. Uh, guys like Asa Lacey with Texas A&M, um, and then going even further, guys like Reed Detmers with Louisville. So it's going to be loaded uh, pitching class. I think the high school depth on the pitching side is a little bit better than it was in 2019 as well. Um, but I think teams are mostly excited about the the amount of impressive college arms because teams love to draft college pitching uh, high in the draft, at least historically. Um, and I think they're going to be excited with the pool they have this year. Well, one team that's an exception to that trend is the Marlins, actually, because I was Mm -hmm. digging into their history um, after seeing that mock draft that you had for B.A. that had Hancock Mm -hmm. to the Marlins at three. I I looked into the history of the Marlins taking college pitchers anywhere in the first round or even in the supplemental first rounds. And not only has it been such a small number of pitchers, but like the biggest success story of that whole group in the Marlins 27 year history is probably Andrew Heaney, who of course didn't even have any of that success with the Marlins itself. Mm -hmm. So they've been, a lot of that like history isn't relevant anymore because Marlins did overhaul a lot of their player development and Mm -hmm. scouting departments under new ownership just a couple of years ago. But you even look Mm -hmm. at the last two years with the Marlins, I don't think they took any, well, they didn't take any pitching whatsoever uh, until the fifth round in the last couple drafts. And then, yeah, even in particular with these college arms, um, they just haven't had a lot of interest or success historically mm-hmm. so uh personally i'm just really excited that with the talent coming up in this class and the the confidence that you seem to have that these guys can be successful at the pro level because mm-hmm. that's 
the Marlins in particular have been really burned by this historically. It's been some prep arms that have obviously been superstars for them. But when it comes mm-hmm. to college arms, that's something that for whatever reason uh, has not worked out for them over the years. Yeah, I think it's, you mentioned Heaney. I think he was in 2012, I believe. And I think that's the last time they've they've taken a college pitcher in the first round. Um, right. So that's pretty wild. But if they want to go that route, there should be plenty of options available to them, though. I do think they're going to be in a good spot picking number three. I think this will be a good year to pick third because I think at this point there's kind of a clear top three on the college side. Um, and I think however they go one, two at this point, uh, the Marlins should be pretty happy with who they wind up with at number three. Um, if things stay the same, obviously we have plenty of time before the 2020 draft. We've got like 245 days until they have to make their pick. Um, but it's looking like a very strong top three right now. And I think uh, Marlins fans are going to be excited as I, I assume they were with Blade this past year. Well, talking of another Vanderbilt product, I think my favorite player in this upcoming draft might be Austin Martin. Uh, his, elite, mm-hmm. his elite hit tool, his big time defensive ability at two positions, really. And seeing him mocked first overall was really not a shock. Uh, I think if he, I mean, not think, but if he possibly has a day like power uptick this season, is he is he a better prospect coming out than Dansby, Dansby Swanson? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, I think probably right. Like, like if he plays shortstop and shows that he can handle it there, he's he's had pretty impressive impact with Vanderbilt. I mean, he was one of the best hitters in the country, uh, and that's including JJ Bleday, who was the fourth pick in the draft. His teammate, he hit. 410, 503, 619 at Bandy. He's got some of the best bad speed that I've seen. Um, and I think the question for like where he's going to go is definitely going to pe- depend on where he plays defensively and how he looks playing there. Like you yeah. said, he can play two premium defensive positions. We just haven't seen a ton of him playing shortstop, and that's not necessarily because he couldn't play there. It's just because the teams he's played on have had better options, or at least that's what the coaching staff has believed at the time. But I saw him a little bit with the college national team this summer playing center field. Uh, and I was really impressed with his running ability and just his, his routes. He cut off balls really well, um, took away a few extra base hits and, and held them to singles when I kind of just assumed those were doubles off the bat. Um, so he's a very athletic, fast player who also has a, a pretty pure swing with some thump. Um, and the, the increased home runs that he showed as a sophomore is encouraging. Yeah. If he continues to tap into some more of the, that power as a as a junior, it's gonna he's gonna fly off the board. And, and obviously, we think he's got a chance to go number one, as we mocked him there in our most recent, which Absolutely. it's a mock in October. So take that for what you want to. But um, yeah, yeah, he's a very exciting talent. <laughs> I don't think he doesn't go anywhere below three, regardless, just because of the talent he has. But like like you're mm-hmm. saying, if that power continues to show the, the upward trend that it's on, it's gonna be it's, it's gonna be crazy to see what he can do in here. Mm-hmm. But no doubt, absolutely. Well, with Miami building an uh, extremely strong farm system recently, this first round pick can go a few different ways in my eyes. And a guy that's really caught my eye recently is Jordan Walker. I think his his fluidity in the field with his size is ridiculous, and it's more impressive mm-hmm. when you see him swing a bat. Uh, what have your thoughts been on him since you've been scouting this year? Yeah, Jordan Walker, I think that's probably a little higher than what I would think of him at this point, but there are definitely people out there that are that are really high on him. Um, he's maybe one of the smarter players that I've got to talk to in this draft class at this point, and most of the guys that I've talked to have been high school players, um, and he was definitely one of the smarter ones that I got to talk to. But he's got some thump in his bat, like you mentioned. 
Um, he's actually the, the feedback that I got from scouts when talking to them kind of after seeing him over the summer circuit is, is they were really impressed with how well he moved as a guy who's six foot five, two twenty, yeah. or thereabouts. But I mean, he moves very fluidly for a guy with his size. Um, he, he was able to barrel up some premium stuff over the summer. He was one of the few guys, uh, that managed to turn around Jared Kelly and get a hit off of him. Uh, Jared Kelly was extremely dominant for me over the summer. Uh, and he had a very competitive at-bat against him in the Perfect Game All-American Classic. He's got really, really impressive power. The one question with me, with Walker, is going to be his profile as a corner infielder, along with Blaze Jordan. I think there are going to be some similar questions with both those guys, although yeah. you could definitely argue that Walker looks better defensively than Jordan at this point, though I think both of them have a chance to play third. Um, but impact bats, maybe a little rich for me in this area, but who knows. Okay, I mean, yeah, I wanted to know your your thoughts on it. That's all I wanted to know. I mean, he's been a pop up prospect almost for me, just seeing him recently mm-hmm. and what he can do with the bat, and the fact that he's still going to be just turning eighteen in the draft month will be pretty exciting. He's only mm-hmm. seventeen years old, and yeah, he'll about, just turned eighteen. Yeah, and talking about Blaze Jordan, um, if he, I think he's going to play a lot of third base this year to go high in the draft. I mean, I think I've seen his stock going lower in a few mocks is is surprising to me, but the first base only prospect as such a young kid has got to be tough to to project almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's done a lot of uh, a lot of impressive stuff and kind of overhauling his body over the past year or so. When he was, I mean, he's been famous for a while now just with yeah. uh, the amount of home runs he's hit at some high-level travel ball tournaments. And uh, he's, I mean, honestly, he's probably the most famous player in this draft class uh, just for the kind of casual baseball audience just because some of the viral videos he's had in some home run derbies. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, look at the Instagram followers and YouTube followers he has. It's pretty insane. He has some of the biggest raw power in this class. Like you said, first base only as a high schooler um, is typically not not a super sexy demographic. Um, but he's done a lot of work to kind of thin down uh, and give himself a chance to play third base defensively. I saw him a little bit, and, and he showed – the tools to be able to hang there. It's just a matter of kind of refining it, improving his footwork, improving his hands, uh, improving his kind of throwing accuracy uh, and ability to make those plays on the run coming in on balls and going left and right. But uh, he does have fantastic hands uh, and he's got a professional approach. When you watch him in batting practice, he has the power to just pull one out every single time, but he uses the entire field. Um, and I think that he's got a chance to be one of the better hitters in this class. Yeah. If you look back, uh, I guess, right around draft time this year. So when people were still already looking ahead to 2020, because uh, I'm sure you noticed the Marlins got off to almost a historically bad start, like the first quarter (laughs) of their season this year, there was a Mm. lot of talk, um, a lot of of teasing them that they'd taken a step backwards. And I mean, if you played out all the way towards the end of the year, they, it was a disappointing year, but it was at that point, like in around late May, early June, that people thought, wow, they'll definitely have the number one pick. And all the public, as you, as you said, with the casual fans, like all the public demand was either it was all Torkelson or Blaze Jordan. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those two, <laughs> you know, just for the most obvious reasons, right? Because was, the team yeah. was facing tor- they were averaging less than three runs a game for for like 40, 50 games into the year. And mm-hmm. as, as it turns out, you know, the Tigers had <laughs> the Tigers came out of nowhere to like set records with their like incompetence, you know, the next few months. And they oh really gosh, ran yeah. away with that. And so we reached this point, though where the offense, that's something that we've actually spoken to our fans about a lot, is how the offense really didn't get a whole lot better as the season went on. It was still, they finished last in the majors in home runs, and there's still naturally uh, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of, uh, 
at the casual level, a lot of people saying you need to focus on getting bats and bats and more bats until this mm-hmm. is fixed. Um, but with what they did in the draft class last year and how they focused on those bats and, and mm-hmm. how they got really good value in those early rounds with bats, I think that that changed some of the thinking a little bit where now they're people are a lot more open-minded to just getting the best player available, whoever that is in the early rounds. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that's a smart call. I mean, regardless of who you talk to after the draft, all the scouting directors are going to say they went best player available, whether or not they actually do that. Uh, you could, you could probably criticize them uh, depending on, on some certain picks, but I think that's always the right call. Like there's so much time between when you draft, and when those players are hitting the major league level, that the, the major league team is going to change so much. Who knows what your needs are going to be? So I think in general, take the best player. If you have uh, if you have extreme depth at one position, you could always trade from that strength to address an area of, of weakness. And if you're better at developing one one position, maybe that's another factor as well. But yeah, I think regardless of what you like, maybe outside of maybe high school players, pretty much any college uh, demographic you might be excited about, you, you you'll have a chance for at number three. I'm curious to see if there will be a high school player that will warrant a top three pick this year that's kind of the big question i have right now yeah i mean i'm excited to see a lot of these high school kids this upcoming weekend in in jupiter because i've yet to see a lot Mm -hmm. of these guys live and how much i've gotten to the draft the past few years i just i mean i feel like i I need to be there so and um, i'm excited to see if hopefully we can see blaze play some third base this weekend or what or that weekend or what but passing yeah you should definitely see it yeah, he should play third base this week. Sweet. Yeah, I would be shocked. I mean, he's been playing third uh, a lot at these at these showcase events and travel ball tournaments. I think it only benefits him to play. Now, I don't I don't know exactly who's on his team, uh, depending who else is there, but you should get some innings with plays at third base for sure. That's awesome. Well, to bring up Miami's current system, <clears throat> Edward Cabrera is a, is a player that you, you guys have received. I've given well deserved praise all year from. You're from Baseball America. He finished the year, I think, in the 70s in the overall top 100. And he just made strides all throughout his season. Where do you think he made the most improvements to his game and possibly could his ceiling be greater than Sixto Sanchez? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Greater than Sixto Sanchez. I mean, it would be tough for me to come in uh, being less familiar with these these guys in the system than probably even you at this point. Most of my focus is on the draft and say that he, he does have a ceiling that could be higher than that, but you never know with these pitchers. Uh, and, and what he showed this year was obviously impressive. I mean, let's see, he had 58 innings in, uh, in Jupiter and had a 2.2, 2.02 ERA, 2.20 ERA in the Southern League and AA. Uh, I mean, he was just really impressive. He's got really impressive stuff, uh, mid to upper 90s fastball. And the thing that separates him from a lot of these other prospects, I mean, it seems like everyone is throwing a mid to upper 90s fastball in the minors. Every single yeah, pitcher we look at is throwing hard. Uh, but the fact that he has two potentially plus off-speed offerings um, is maybe what's going to be the separator for him moving forward. Uh, so I'll be curious how he's able to kind of control that stuff moving forward. He's had good um, walk rates throughout his entire minor league career. If he can continue to do that uh, and just keep sharpening his stuff, I mean, it's going to be very exciting. I don't know exactly what the ceiling of him would be at this point, but... The fact that they've got players like that who are improving and continue to get better in the system with loud, pure stuff is is exciting. Yeah, Ian was the very first person on this bandwagon that Edward Cabrera is the true top pitching prospect in the system. It, it's something that yeah. very early in the year, he's a personal favorite of Ian's. So Yeah, yeah the I fact that to, you can seriously <laughs> have that conversation, like, well, even the fact that you can seriously consider it, I think, is a testament to his talent because – 
I mean, for the I, I wouldn't have even thought of that really. Just kind of looking at their system from more of an outsider than you, I would have just thought oh, six to obviously. But no, I think I think you make a good point. He's got the stuff. Two months older, and I mean the the body projectability is what really saves him in the in the long run. In that size, being six mm-hmm. four at almost one hundred ninety pounds now, he's got so much room for growth and and development. Yeah, if you're worried about the size for six to, I definitely think you could err towards the guy who's six foot four. <laughs> yeah. I mean, granted, I've never seen an easier 99 than I've seen out of 6 though this year. So mm-hmm. it was surprising to see what he can do with this little frame. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. But, He's got an absolutely special arm. But going back to your UNC days here a little bit, I know you were able to cover Brian Miller over his collegiate years until he was the 36th overall pick for the Marlins in 17. Uh, what are your thoughts on his pro career so far, if you have any, and where could you think he could take it? Yeah, it's been crazy to watch his career, right? I mean – Coming into UNC, you would have never thought that he was going to get drafted as high as he did. I mean, he was a guy who originally was a walk-on to the team, uh, if I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, he's he's definitely, I think he's played above what we kind of expect him. He's not the toolsiest guy ever. Uh, but just looking at his minor league career now, he's already made it to double A, being 265, 326, 354. I don't know if you have a ton of ceiling um, with a guy like Brian Miller, but you're going to get a competitive at bat with him. He, I don't even think he's someone who's in, uh, actually I need to see where he ranks in our system right now. But um, yeah, so 27th is where we have him right now. So I don't know how much upside you're going to get with a guy like Brian Miller, um, but it's definitely impressive with what he's done with kind of the tool set that he has. I'll be very curious to see if he makes it to the bigs and what he kind of ends up being at that point, because like I said, he's not the toolsiest guy. He doesn't have a lot of power. Um, he's just a very professional hitter and a professional player that I think is not going to hurt you in any one area, but he's not going to blow you away either. Um, I never would have thought that Brian Miller would have made it to the the kind of level he's at at this point watching him when I was in college, though. I think it's uh, a testament to him. It's, it's been phenomenal to watch. Yeah, and, and what you're saying is um, something that he did confirm to me, that he was like a preferred walk-on, he called it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carolina, where he felt he could have played baseball a couple other places, but Carolina mm-hmm. was always his dream school growing up. So we wanted to make yeah, it. Yeah, he was a local kid. Yeah, yeah. And I think didn't he play some first base in college? Like he, he wasn't in some DH where he didn't wasn't necessarily yeah he seriously he as played there. I'm trying to think who the outfielder. I don't know if Sky Bolt was on the team at that point, but it was definitely like they just didn't have a spot for him in the outfield because there were some players who kind of solidified their positions at the time but they wanted to get his bat in the lineup. So they threw him at first and he did, did a nice job there. And then when he uh, wound up moving to the outfield, he uh, he obviously performed uh, enough to get himself drafted at the end of the first round. So it's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, it's still being told. So we'll see, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on Miller turning into kind of uh, an everyday player or anything like that. But if he does, he'll just continue to kind of exceed people's expectations for him, I guess. <laughs> Right. Well, on the topic of Carolina baseball, I wanted just some quick thoughts from you about uh, – I'm assuming you still follow the program pretty closely, you know, being an alum from mm-hmm. there. Uh, it, guys that are on their team currently, whether it's this draft class or even looking forward to the next couple draft classes, uh, is there anybody intriguing that, that jumps out to you that you want to give some love to, either someone that you think will go in the early rounds the next couple drafts or um, just has some interesting skill sets? Because the Marlins – have some interesting history with Carolina. There was one year, mm-hmm. Brian Miller's year. They also, I think they selected three total Carolina players in that draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they traded to get, uh, when they traded Ozuna, Marcel Ozuna, Zach Gallen was in that package. 
And obviously his mm-hmm. stock has soared in the couple of years since then. He was originally at a Carolina and then going back a bunch of years, they had made Colin Moran their first round pick at a Carolina. Mm-hmm. There's just some, a little bit of a history there of them uh, preferring Carolina players. Uh, just curious who's in the next wave of guys coming out of that school. Yeah, the one that immediately jumps to mind is Aaron Sabato. He's going to be a draft-eligible sophomore this year for UNC, and he's one of the stronger players in this college class coming up. I mean, there was a video that the UNC baseball team posted of him a couple weeks ago, I believe, of him just hitting off of a tee and hitting, like, a 420-foot bomb straightaway center field. It was absolutely massive. He's extremely thick, extremely strong, not in a bad way also. He's 6'2", like 230, I believe, Uh, so he packs a punch. Last year as a freshman, I mean, he just hit some of the loudest balls uh, that I've ever seen while there. Colin Moran obviously did that a lot back back when he was there. But with Michael Bush and him in the lineup, uh, there was a lot of power. And I think Sabato kind of routinely hit the ball as hard as Bush did. He hit 335, 437, 650 with 13 home runs as a freshman, uh, which is not easy to do, obviously. Uh, he's kind of limited defensively. Um this is going to be a first baseman for you. I don't know if you'll be able to play the outfield, but as far as an impact bat, uh, Sabato is going to be a really fun to watch, a really fun player to watch. So if you want a UNC guy who's going to be impact the draft in some capacity, you need to look at Aaron Sabato. And just before getting you out of here, Carlos, uh, as someone, Ian is someone that pretty much obsessively follows the draft process year rounds. I'll admit that I'm a little bit further unplugged until we actually get in close to the actual draft itself. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. curious what exactly – I know you mentioned that you're actually going to be covering a, a prep tournament in these next couple of days. Uh, what exactly is the step-by-step of your draft coverage over these like next few months before the actual 2020 season gets going? Like, um, In terms of what events do you get to cover? Um, mm-hmm. And what sort of work do you do when there's actually no active events going on? And you don't actually yeah. get live looks at anybody. How does how do your evaluations shape up without the benefit of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the next event I'm going to is actually by the biggest uh, travel ball tournament of the year for high school players, WWBA Perfect Games Jupiter Tournament. I think uh, you mentioned uh, one of you guys mentioned you were going to this this weekend. That's that's maybe the biggest uh, travel ball tournament in the country. So that's the last big event that I go to every year. I'll get some looks at at a bunch of high school kids. I mean, there are thousands of kids that are playing in this tournament. Um, so me and a couple of guys from Baseball America will go down and watch that. And then following that event, um, we'll kind of make a few more calls with some scouts throughout the country, um, expand our high school and college uh, draft list. So right now we have top 50s on both of those for the 2020 high school and college list. We'll expand those to, to the top 100s based on basically the entire summer and fall kind of being wrapped up. Um, and then after that, I go into um, prospect handbook mode. Um, as you guys, I'm sure you know, at Baseball America, we come with a prospect handbook every year, which is the top 30 prospects for every team in the game. So I'll spend uh, about a month or so working on my team for that before kind of getting back into the draft mode. And then for, throughout the winter, it's a lot of uh, calling around with scouts and kind of getting uh, a feel for each area throughout the country, which players we need to be aware of, which guys we need to uh, – kind of have down on a list to be to be checking back in on in the spring once the spring rolls around it's a lot more college focused for me than high school just because over the summer I get to so many showcases and uh and tournaments from the high school side so it's it's focused on the college guys but obviously I'll check out 
uh, a number of high school players that are that are a little bit closer. There are a few events on the high school side, like the Boris Classic that I'll go out to in the spring. Um, but the NHSI is another big one, USA Baseball's National High School Invitational uh, that happens in Cary, which is right in our backyard. Uh, Baseball America's office is in Durham, North Carolina. So it's nice to have that one close to us. But um, And then as we kind of ramp up towards the draft, uh, it's a lot more calls. It's honestly just calling as many scouts as possible um, and trying to uh, to shape up our BA 500 list, which is kind of the bulk of our draft coverage. The The good thing about doing draft coverage at Baseball America is we try to uh, get the industry's consensus on the top talent. So while obviously I have to see these guys, I try to make it to where none of my personal opinions affect our rankings because we think it's much more uh, noteworthy or much more important to show our readers what MLB teams think of a draft class than what me, Carlos Colazzo, uh, some random nobody who's just watched baseball for a long time thinks of a class uh, we think it's much more valuable to get uh, scouts' opinions and, and kind of form our lists in that way. We do we do all of our draft lists, all of our prospect lists in that manner. Um, so it's just calling as many people as possible at that point. But I think that kind of sums up the year. Uh, if there's anything else I've been touched on, feel free to, to pester me more about it. But I think that's basically what the schedule is like in, in broad terms. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty thorough. We don't need to map map out every single day of your life between now and then, but, but uh, that gives us a really good picture. Uh, thank you. And mm-hmm. this year in particular, during the cycle, I should say, I mean, Marlins fans are going to be fixated on BA and everything you guys do because, I mean, with any hope, this is going to be the last year for a while that they're picking at the very, very top. They have, mm-hmm. uh, as people have mentioned, they have a pretty elite farm system with some guys at AA and AAA that are close to breaking through. And even in a tough division, it seems kind of inevitable that just from graduating some of this top talent from the high minors, they're going to be a more respectable product at the major league level. And that's just going to mean mm-hmm. having to settle for lower draft position. And I think that's a trade-off that a lot of people would take at this point, uh, having mm-hmm. a lot of confidence in the guys that they've picked up over the last couple drafts. And uh, yeah, like BA is really what we consider the gold standard for a lot of our information at Fish Stripes, uh, we, to some extent, we do parrot some of the evaluations that you guys form when you collaborate together. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just a really good resource. And I always encourage people to subscribe to Baseball America when they can. And I know that you're a pretty big part of that, even though you like to defer some credit. You seem pretty modest about your opinions <laughs> as just a guy that watched baseball. But uh, we've, been, we've been aware of you for quite a while, and we know you're pretty talented at evaluating. So that's Carlos Colazzo <laughs> well, thanks. Baseball America. Thank, thank you for the kind words, and, and we do appreciate you guys subscribing, and we appreciate anyone who, who subscribes because, I mean, like J.J. Cooper says all the time, uh, we, we really couldn't do all this without the amount of support and, and the subscribers that we have. You guys are the reason we're able to spend so much time. I mean, you guys are the reason that I'm able to spend really the entire year focusing on the draft outside of like a month. So without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do the work that we do. So we're really thankful and, and grateful for that. And we're grateful to have you on the pod. So. <laughs> We'll be, we'll be sure to check in with you uh, as this draft cycle unfolds, and uh, we're going to be following all your work on BA. So uh, enjoy the rest of the night, the rest of this postseason. That's Carlos Colazzo here on Earning Their Stripes. Um, thank you so much, Carlos. This is great. Yep. Absolutely. Man. Thank, thank you, you guys so for having me. This is a blast.